Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and Vim, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. We're excited to be celebrating in the month of April World Landscape Architecture Month for this profession. And I have three wonderful landscape architects in the studio with me today. Amy Couples is the managing principal at Keller Mitchell & Company, operating a landscape architecture firm off the west coast of the United States. I also have Kona Gray, who is a principal at EDSA. Kona operates out of their Fort Lauderdale, Florida office. And then in addition to that, we have Kush Parekh, who is associate principal at Studio MLA in Los Angeles. I'm so honored to have you all with us in the uh, studio today. It's going to be a great time. Thanks for inviting me, Dave. Good to be here. Hey, Dave. Thanks again for the invitation. So here we are going through the pandemic. It's over 2020 and up into even we're still in it at this point. And as we hopefully emerge from this later in the year of 2021, one of the things that we look to in the future is to see what is most meaningful in this industry going forward. Uh, We've identified two areas or two professions that we see are standout in our new consciousness toward environmental health, healthiness, well-being, and allowing humans to move in an expanded footprint as they move in and out of work and play and entertainment and food and government and all the different things that we do. Those two disciplines are the Mechanical Engineering Plumbing, MEP Engineering Group, which has become front and center toward healthiness of our air and understanding the critical need of clean air within our spaces. But secondly, if not equally, is the landscape architecture profession, which is providing for humans who have been living in buildings for so long alternatives to becoming much more exterior and much more engaged in the outside spaces in the urban environment, the suburban environment, and even and even the rural environment for us to hang out in and to have alternative places for us to meet outside, to actually conduct our gatherings and our collaborations and our work on the outside, whether that's at the work side or at the entertainment side or the hospitality side, we could go on and on with that. It's exciting to be here with you as representatives of the landscape architecture profession spanning the United States. Let's talk a little bit about what the future holds, as you've watched dramatic changes occurring as well over this year, what are you seeing? And, and, and how do you see all these changes reflected in the practice of landscape architecture? I'd like to begin with you, Amy, on any insights that you could offer us. Wow. So, yeah, 2020 has brought a tremendous amount of change, not only in the way we work, but in how we experience our daily life. Um, We transitioned as an office from working in a paper face-to-face environment to working remotely all at home. And all of us had our families with us there at the same time. We wanted to get out and go for a walk. And so I think 
you know, living in our homes for the full year, basically, uh, working and schooling, we've really come to realize how important that out-of-doors experience truly is. And realizing that our environment is so designed for the movement of vehicles and that standard four-foot sidewalk is just not big enough when we've been told to stay away, six feet away from people. So I think we are much more, not just landscape architects, because we've been talking about it for years, but everyone became really vitally aware of how important that out-of-door space is, how important our parks and our trails are and our parks are, and just our, our small residential environment. How, where can we go to? Where's our closest coffee shop or our closest grocery store? Can we walk to it? Are we comfortable walking to it? So that complete streets design, designing for a street for movement of pedestrians and bicycles and cars and public transportation, it really became front and center for everyone. Yeah, it's been an extraordinary change. Uh, this fall, we're going to be in Venice in Italy conducting an event on the future cities and in particular accessible Cities And boy, haven't we found that critical need. So, Amy, I think in our pre-discussion, we were talking about how you folks actually increased your workforce by a third during this 2020 period. Uh, obviously, that meant there was a need for more and more of your services. How is this, this, these changes that we've watched reflected directly into your practice? And what does that mean to maybe by extension, the overall practice of landscape architecture? Well, we certainly design a lot of schools and parks and sports facilities, and all of those have become more prominent in our work. Our, our schools, our school districts are looking at whole master plans for outdoor learning spaces. What those spaces are, very flexible spaces, spaces that are right outside the schoolyard, a classroom, but also spaces for larger gatherings or spaces that are a little bit further away for the kids to go and have a a garden or something like that. All of these used to be on the list occasionally. They would often get cut out of the budget, but now they're really front and center for how do we get our kids out of that classroom, the indoor classroom, and create a learning environment outside. And this is, is from the preschooler all the way up through the high school STEM classrooms, outdoor classrooms. That's pretty special. And so a, a reprioritization is what's occurred fundamentally. And we're seeing that in many parts of the industry, uh, practice area by practice area, where a new set of priorities, a new set of values are coming to the fore on how we make decisions and where we want to spend our money at the end of the day. Kush, tell us about what's going on in MLA and what you're seeing is some of the changes that have occurred during this period. So... I almost see this as a silver lining uh, for the profession because there has definitely been renewed appreciation for nature and for open space. And as Amy pointed out, there's an understanding that these are essential, not just superfluous, uh, towards our physical and mental well-being. Having said that, you know, the parks and the, the types and the characteristics of park environments are also changing and as people are flocking to maintain their social distancing, they're, they're trying to find and hunt for these larger open green spaces and urban forests, uh, spaces that are more informal, so just so that they can have this opportunity to gather with their family and friends. So the concept of like having urban parks that are more programmed is shifting to having things that are more flexible and, and um, have allow for multiple uses to happen at the same time. Having said that, our firm has definitely also seen a huge uptick in education 
in healthcare, you know, investments in housing markets and public infrastructure, you know, the transportation industry and the public transport has gonna is gonna have a very challenging time ahead to convince people that you know it is safe to travel again on public transport in buses and in trains. Yeah, it is a it's a big shift altogether. And and it and it creates new challenges. In spite of all the great opportunities, it does create new challenges uh, during this period. How about you, Kona? What are you seeing out there in industry, and how the landscape architect is reposturing during this COVID and post-COVID period that's arriving? Yeah, this this certainly is a moment for landscape architects. It's, it's pretty amazing to see how many people are finally starting to realize the benefit of the outdoors. You know, the thing that's so interesting, if you if you understand your history, is that this isn't new. Um, there was a cholera epidemic many, many years ago in the 1800s that spurred Central Park and several other major green initiatives and green investments in parks and um, boulevards and promenades because people needed fresh air to remain healthy. It's interesting for us as landscape architects because I know that many of us have been sort of championing this cause to take back the streets and create more greenways and provide complete streets, as Amy uh, mentioned, to uh, a lot of pushback from some people as they didn't fully engage or realize the the desire and actually the, the need for this connection to the outdoors from not only from a health perspective physically, but from a health perspective mentally. And um, it's good to know that we have another opportunity to push an environmental movement towards a better world. And um it, it, it certainly, we certainly have seen a major adjustment in our work, whether our clients are in the hospitality industry, which took a significant hit due to COVID. We were able to jump in and provide solutions for our clients to capitalize on their outdoor spaces or education. Um, many of our clients are education, higher education clients, as well as um, primary and secondary education clients, where we were really looking at opportunities for outdoor learning spaces, which we had frequently suggested in many of our projects. But as was noted before, sometimes those spaces get cut out at the end. But the opportunity to have these sort of um, fusion spaces where an interior classroom and an exterior classroom sort of blend together and there's, there's this sort of blurring of the lines between indoors and outdoors is really exciting. I had a call with some of the large property investors in the commercial office space not too long ago, and we were talking about the challenges that they're having with literally millions of square foot of empty space as a result of what's happening, as people are not gathering in the workplace altogether and they're working from home, or is what I call work from anywhere these days, and we're watching announcements by corporation after corporation that you'll see between 30 and 40% of that space will remain empty even post-COVID as they've found that work productivity continues to sustain, if not escalate, while at the same time the cost to the worker is dropped dramatically because they're not paying for commutes or parking or dry cleaning or all the other things that come with getting out and about and commuting back and forth to work. As that continues, that, of course, puts a new pressure on the commercial real estate industry. And I was saying to them in this, in this Zoom call that we were having, how many of you are considering or reconsidering what you're doing on the outside of your buildings, either on the roofs or taking space outside to create more meaningful places for people to congregate and be in an open-air environment? It was crickets. 
I didn't get any responses back, which was interesting because we have millions of square feet of roof space that could be reclaimed for doing this kind of work that you folks do. We have new buildings that could go up and and cause the offset from the streets to be wider so that there was more green space opportunities. But most of the time in our tradition, we push the limits to get as much of the square footage in place as possible to the demise of the exterior space for these commercial office buildings. We're predicting we're going to see a change in that coming forward, where we may, you see this much more holistic sense of design being done in that space. The design intelligence, we believe that equity, health, and the environment are inextricably connected to each other. When I think of that, when I think of social equity, when I think of social health, when I think of environmental responsibility, I have to immediately ask the design professions, so what? What does that mean to you? So I'll pose that to this audience of, of speakers, of panelists. What does it mean when we say uh, design for equity to a landscape architect or design for healthiness to a landscape architect? Or obviously, and it should be obvious, what it means to environmental responsibility. So why don't we start with you, Kush? How do you, what say you to these things? It's no uh, secret that the communities that are most affected by the pandemic are these underserved Black and Latinx communities who also tend to be the ones that have the least amount of access to parks and public open space. And the issue has been, you know, historically, our urban design, our planning policies have disenfranchised low-income and Black Hispanic neighborhoods from freeways that have divided these neighborhoods, you know, urban renewal projects that have leveled black communities here in L.A. You know, we've always tried and failed to keep uh, the existing communities in place. So as we are thinking about designing for equity in these communities, you know, we I feel like the, the strategies that we need to explore are about making sure that we are able to engage with these communities and, and really listen to them. More often than not, what we find is there's a, there's a lot of skepticism from these communities when we have these fancy designers and architects and landscape architects coming in to help them. And the fear that they are going to be eventually pushed out or that their neighborhoods are going to be gentrified. So building that trust with them, making a conscious effort to, to listen to each community's specific needs and issues and, you know, also making sure that they see tangible results through the process and how, as we develop plans and, and uh, policies, we are listening to them and implementing them in those. That's really important, isn't it? And, and, to, and to encourage them to not be spectators, but participants in this dynamic. And maybe even then, when the design is done and implemented and you walk away, they become the stewards of their neighborhoods in a new way of these public spaces. Um, but I don't know how much we talk about that. That's a very good point, because, you know, they, there is this attitude towards having these amenities that, people, you know, when people are engaged, they, they feel that they own the place and they have a responsibility to maintain it. I remember a long time ago, we worked on an urban park in, uh, it was the first urban park in downtown LA. And as a part of the community, we actually even had these gang members who were the local gang members who came in and became so involved with the process that they are still making sure that the park is accessible and open and, and keeping it safe for everyone, which was a remarkable 
change. So, you know, that's a, that's a very important point. But along with design, I think it's, it's important for us as landscape architects also to forward, uh, use landscape architecture as an advocacy tool and make sure that we are working with local governments and social institutions to really help these communities thrive in place. So, you know, is if it's in form of working with nonprofits to educate them in financial literacy or working with community development banks on, on loans for local businesses and small businesses. So, you know, when there is this influx of investment and which is inherently going to bring more people to these communities, they are able to, to take on that and really benefit from all of these issues. Well, that's really important. Amy, weigh into this with us. Yes, I've, we've been experiencing similar things. We have current park project that we're working on, and through COVID, we're trying to do these community engagement meetings over Zoom, and it has been very challenging to try and get the communities to really participate because these disenfranchised communities don't have access or don't know how to use Zoom, don't know how to use the survey monkeys. So it's really working with the local community organizers and the local government, the city council, and all of those different avenues, even even the local businesses, and working with them to try and get outreach to all of those community members so they all can engage in these community meetings. We're doing the community meetings in multiple languages, which means what used to be one community meeting is now three or four community meetings. We're doing surveys in multiple languages, and then we're processing that data and waiting it for those who really engage with the park on a daily basis or or weekly basis and um, who live local to that park. So we're not just looking at people who come to the park maybe once a year for a festival. That is so smart. That is so smart, leveraging the data. Yeah. And, and that, that data analysis has really become much more rigorous than it ever was a decade ago. So hopefully we're creating a, uh, a park and really going to put elements in this park that are what the community wants so they can really enjoy their open space and it can thrive rather than being a rundown city park. I love that. That is a really pragmatic solution. It's either I do it to you or we do it with one another. And more often than not, it's always been a, whoop, this is what you get. It's been done to people. And they don't own it at that point. But if they felt that their voice was heard and they were collaborative in this, it's, uh, the outcomes can be truly sustainable. What are you seeing, Kona, in this space around design for equity and healthiness and environmental responsibility? Well, it's certainly a relevant conversation today. And, um, you know, what I've always firmly believed as, as well as, as EDSA that designing, um, you know, for equity requires understanding of cultures. And, and as you know, our firm, we're global and we've done work around the world where we take time to get to know that culture. We find people that speak the language and make sure they're involved in the process. I think that what's interesting is that we are trained to study context and design experiences to make sure that they fit that context, but it's, there's, no, there's no doubt that many designers have sort of jumped out there and introduced something that just doesn't fit, and, and that's when you get kind of a little bit of pushback or a lack of use of a space, which in, in my humble opinion means the design has, has essentially failed. 
And, you know, and I do believe that you don't need to be Italian to design in Italy and you, you don't need to be African-American to design in Detroit. You, you just need to have empathy and care about the places where you're designing and, and literally intentionally take the time to get to know people because that's really what it comes down to with inclusive design. And, and, it, and it is unfortunate that our professions over the years, whether we're planners, architects, landscape architects, have kind of set a sour tone in the in sort of the psyche of many of the residents and communities we work with, because in many cases they are skeptical, you know, because the, the proof is in the experiences, unfortunately. You know, one experience that I will never forget is working in North Miami several years back with a community that was certainly underserved. And when we were introduced to um, look at an opportunity to actually design a park on park land that was hadn't been developed in over 40 years, they looked at us like we were crazy. They were like, "Why are you guys here? You know, and what do you want from us?" <laughs> so it was it was it was challenging. We had to build trust, and um, and it was it was completely understandable. And what we did immediately was just listen. I mean, we we had nothing to say but to just you know express. Our, our true um, understanding and and, um, and empathy and willingness to help. We had a, we had quite a bit of of, uh, of discussion with with the residents, but once we got past that, the community jumped on board. I think, as Kusher and Amy um, noted, many of the community members actually jumped on board and said, you know, this is our park. We're going to protect it. I remember, one of the elders, a, a Marine, basically stated that. This, this park would be protected in, in perpetuity, you know, and they, they stood up to that. It's still doing well. That's fantastic. I love stories like that. When I think about where we've been going for a while, and of course, you'll have different experiences that I'd love to hear. It, it seems that our industry has been stuck in some old paradigms for a long time. You know, the, the building owner investor commissions an architect to come up with some design that architect surrounds themselves with consultants, engineers, landscapers, others to to build out this overall sense of conceptual design and where this thing is going to go and then and that it moves on from there. Do you find yourself mostly working as a consultant to the architecture community or do you see yourself is that changing somewhat to where you're going direct to the clients, uh, the investors around that space? What does that look like to you, maybe traditionally and where we are today and where you think that's going as far as in our, where our primary relationships are that bring us into projects on this side? How about you, Kona? What do you think about that? Well, you know, it's interesting. We've been fortunate to be team leaders on many of our projects with clients we know through relationships, whether we met them at a conference or a ULI or or they just reached out to us they, as they know from, um, from experience or from um, recommendation to look at raw land before they've even thought about, you know, the, the, the prospect of an architect. And those sort of greenfield, natural, large master plan efforts, we typically are the ones that are brought in first. However, we have a healthy balance of work with architects and other um, consultants on all types of projects. I mean, our urban design projects are typically led by architects, but there are many occasions where clients, um, whether they're municipalities or, or private, will bring us in early just to take more of a holistic approach to it. And it's not just about the building, it's more about the urban design or the planning. And, it, and, it's, and it's actually, I, 
haven't seen a, a, a major shift due to COVID or any, any other um, disruptions. We, we tend to have very good experiences with many of the allied professionals. Um, you know, as landscape architects, we play very well in the sandbox. And, um, you know, collaboration has been a major sort of tenant of ours for, for, for centuries. And I don't see that ending. I really don't. I, I do see that many are starting to have a little bit more understanding and um, respect for the abilities of landscape architects, which I think is, it's, it's really good. That's great. Amy, some reflections on this? I, I would absolutely agree that with what Kona said, that architects are starting to have a better understanding of what landscape architects do. We have a mix of projects where we're prime as well as sub-consultants to the architects. Our best and most successful projects are those where we're involved early on as part of one of the core team members with the architects and the owner and doing master planning concept and programming. And that really allows us to look at the needs of the client and develop a project holistically, building and outdoor and create that experience that's really a whole experience, indoor-outdoor experience. Those are the most exciting projects. We can do it. We can meet the client's needs. We can meet their budget. And we can really create a project that features everything, landscape and architecture. The most frustrating projects are when an architect calls us up at the last minute and asks us to shrub it up. And it's just planting and irrigation and water use calculations. We have no connection to those projects. And and those are sort of the most disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. Might as well call a local nursery. (laughs) <laughs> at the end right. of the day. Yeah. But we those projects are becoming fewer and fewer, thankfully. Yeah. And I think they will become more, uh, what, you're, what you just described as on the positive side of getting involved early, uh, I think is going to become more commonplace, particularly not only because of this necessity that we've seen coming out of COVID, but I also believe there's another major shift that's occurring, and that has to do with the demographic of our country, since we're going to talk here about the U.S. We're watching a massive shift of leadership occur at the client side in almost all all different parts of the society where 30s and 40s are becoming the, the the decision makers as people are moving and aging into a different place. And this younger generation, these younger generations of, of leaders are coming at their decisioning with a different set of values, a different set of priorities as they look forward. And one of those is, is of course, this idea of responsibility. And it's this responsibility, not just at environmental responsibility, but economic responsibility and social responsibility. And it's driving some of the early decisions way up front in their investment criteria, to which, of course, landscape architecture has a significant voice in those dimensions of responsibility. Kush, when you look into the future 10 years from now, what does the practice of landscape architecture look like? Have we changed? Are we employing new tools? Uh, Do we have a broadened or more narrow consciousness about the work we do? What are you thinking about the future of this profession? You know, what has been really interesting to see in the last uh, few years is, um, as as Kona and Amy had mentioned, is the cross-collaboration between disciplines when we are working on projects. You know, as they had correctly pointed out, some of our most successful projects have been when architects, engineers, and landscape architects are on the table 
talking about higher level project goals and uh, performance goals, and then you know bringing our own different perspectives and collectively selecting what is the best uh, way to move forward. But you know this this is also being noticed in the, in the engineering world. We are getting a lot of phone calls to team up with engineers on large scale infrastructure projects as we move from this idea of a single use infrastructure towards a multi-use infrastructure, understanding that our bridges, our waterways can do a lot more than one thing. And so as landscape architects, as we look towards the future, I see more us doing more of these cross-collaborative projects and working and extending our profession more to just uh, parks and open space. That's pretty exciting. Uh, to be brought to the table early and to be seen as a peer in these things is really critical, I think, for the profession. If you're speaking into the life of a landscape architect student at one of the universities, what do you inspire them? Kush, I'm going to let you speak in that. How do you inspire them to stay in the profession, to finish your work, and to move clearly into this profession going forward? What inspires them in that space? I'm very optimistic that our profession has a, has a long way to go and a, and a lot more to achieve. You know, compared to architects and engineers, we are a minority in the profession. There's not that, that many of us. But, you know, our, our passion towards communities, towards creating a better planet, better living space for all of us, you know, which we are seeing it's, you know, where we live does matter. And having this opportunity to make an impact is what I think would drive students I think you're right. Amy, when you think about the future of the profession 10 years out, are we doing anything different? Have we changed in our practices or do we, are we employing some new technology? What, what do you see about the future of this fantastic profession? I see us really working holistically with the other professions, just as Kush and Kona both said. We have to look at a project in its complete form. And we specialize in landscape architecture, architects specialize in the buildings, the engineers come in, and everything moves through the landscape. So we as landscape architects really get to see and interact with all of those different disciplines and help the owner understand holistically what's happening on the project. And when it comes to the environment and really making sure that we are protecting the space that we live in, we, we help to negotiate all those little fine-tuned details uh, of making sure that we are being most efficient and creating the best green space and best open space that we can as we move from one building to another. I'm really looking forward to a time when you, as the landscape architecture folks, are commissioned and paid by owners to do a performance assessment on the buildings and their interaction with the landscape post-turnover. So we have these buildings that go up. They may or may not be clean buildings. At the end of the day, if they are not clean buildings, that means they have a heavy carbon footprint or there's something else going on from a, a negative standpoint, then they become derogatory to the local landscape. And yet, you know, the building looks pretty, the landscape looks pretty, but we're not watching what's going on under the surface. We're not, we're not able to really look at what we call the performance of the site appropriately. And I'm looking forward to seeing contractual instrumentation that calls you back over and over again to perform assessments and benchmarking of site performance. And it's not just how, how well the landscape in and of itself is performing, but the interaction of the landscape with the building and the urban environment. 
that gets me excited because it's one thing to talk about the future with dreams. It's another thing to put some accountability to it. And we will only emerge in the new world toward healthier outcomes, both at the social level and the environmental level. We'll only be able to get to those healthier outcomes when there's accountabilities in place. And who better to do it than the landscape architecture profession when it comes to the exterior environment and the interaction of humans, buildings, streets, vehicles with the natural environment. Kona, what do you have to say about the future? Ah, the future is exciting for me. I, I got to tell you, a lot of people can quickly go to the gloom and doom, but um, I see a very bright future for the professional landscape architecture. We, we certainly have the ability to assess a lot of the um, understandings related to the land. Many people tend to forget that the land was here first um, until humans um, inhabited and started to impact it in, in many different ways. And the whole sort of post-occupancy conversation we, we're having right now is really exciting and, and very intriguing. Um, we're looking at a project in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, called Steel Mill Town. And the mill was unfortunately built in the valley adjacent to an amazing, beautiful creek that has been obviously polluted from the mill. Um, as, a, as a major source of income for many years, that was, you know, I guess, okay for them. Uh, now, not so much. <laughs> and, and the community reached out to us to help them reimagine what it should be and what it could be. And so when you start to look at how our transformations have been negative, we need to sort of step back and, and ask ourselves, what can we do better? What can we do to make our transformations positive for the future? And I, I'm very confident and um, excited to see landscape architects lead that charge, really focusing on a lot of things that we all know is right, and, and not because it's, it's good for the economics or it's good for, the, for, for humanity or it's good for the environment, but that it's good for all three, um, you know, sort of the triple bottom line effect. And I, I know that we can do it if we just pay attention and, and keep moving towards that I guess you could call it utopia, and that, that may seem naive, but we definitely have something here that's worth protecting and cherishing and preserving. And the only way it's going to happen is if we all get educated, step up, and, and do the right thing. That's fantastic. April is World Landscape Architecture Month. To end, I just want to open it up and let you, each of you, add what's your parting shot. What do you want to say to this audience? You're, I'm sure that there are many within your profession who are hearing this. And, of course, there's we don't calculate how many architects and engineers, but a lot of people hear this broadcast. You get the mic. What do you want to say to the profession, in particular around where we are as landscape architects? Why don't I begin with you, Amy? I think landscape architecture is a really exciting profession. There's so many different things that we can do from designing resorts, designing homes, designing parks, schools, healthcare, hospitals. It's, there's so much variation. Be because of everyone becoming more and more aware of the need for us to protect this world and protect the environment, we are really at the precipice of being able to affect significant change. And, and people are listening, and we're ready. We have the education, the training, and we're ready to talk to the communities and get out there and really help them achieve a, a change that, that they want and that works for them. So I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah. I, I really enjoy 
what I'm doing. And we need you doing what you're doing, Amy, you and your organization. Kona, what do you have to say to our audience as we get ready to wrap up? Well, it's, it's really amazing to to be a designer in this time. I mean, I know you mentioned tools and things that we're doing in terms of our work. I mean, there hasn't been so much variety and opportunity to design in a manner that allows you to use different technology to still sketch by hand, to come up with great ideas. My desire, and I know it's a hope for many of us, is that landscape architecture as a profession becomes a household name, that it's just understood. I think awareness has been our major issue. But when you think about community and how community is affected by the land, so many people are um, engaged in the exterior space, and they and they don't really always recognize it. Not everyone goes into every building, but everyone at some point is making their way through the land. And there's there's just this amazing opportunity for us all to to do even better um, and to really take it further. In 2016, the Landscape Architecture Foundation celebrated its 50th year. Um, as a past president, one of the major things we did was to sort of do a retrospective of the past 50 years and then jump forward to look at the upcoming 50 years. And our first recipient of one of our awards, Grant Jones, made a, a, a very um, a very passionate statement. He simply said, the, the earth is our client. And I, I remember very vividly being in the group, listening to his speech, and, and that, I will never forget that moment. It was just pretty fantastic that you know, although he was speaking to landscape architects, it was uh, it was a good sort of reminder of why we do what we do. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for that. Kush, bring it home. I can't add much to after uh, what Amy and Kona have already mentioned, but I, I will say that, you know, as landscape architects, we, we do have this unique tool that we can help visualize complex ideas that are affecting our cities and communities and really use our profession, our industry as an advocacy tool to show, show the community, show, show everybody of the what if. And I think being able to do that for everybody is, uh, is what I think is very exciting for us. That's pretty special. The art, the science of landscape architecture, we depend on you to apply this, to help us save our world, to make the world a better place, to realize the dream of equity, healthiness, and environmental responsibility. Thank you all for joining me on This Is Design Intelligence. I'm glad you were with me. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Dave, thank you for such a wonderful conversation. Until next time. I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This Is Design Intelligence, sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. The producer for This Is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells, sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.